Hey everyone, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Primal Goods Company. Primal Goods Company is what I used to find high-end supplement companies that only use quality ingredients and don't cut corners in producing their products. They supply nutritional packs to help you cover all of your health and nutrition needs. They're an incredible company. They're badass. That's why I use them. You can try them out as well. To take 10% off your next order, go to primalgoodsco.com. Enter the code LIFEREADY at checkout to receive 10% off your order and give them a try today. We're also brought to you by Life Ready Foods. For the longest time, we couldn't find any super clean supplements that didn't wreck our gut, so we worked with the team to develop our own supplement line. We now produce high-end supplements that have a fully transparent ingredient list and are meant to help supplement your nutrition and training needs. Go check them out. Give them a try. Head to lifereadyfoods.com and enter lifeready at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. That's lifereadyfoods.com. Enter lifeready at checkout. My guest, ladies and gentlemen, on the show today is Lauren Colenzo Semple, a research and teaching associate at the University of South Florida with a research focus on adaptations to resistance training in young women. Lauren's educational background includes an MS in exercise science and a BA in psychology and sociology. She's also a certified strength and conditioning specialist and certified sports nutritionist. Uh, She's worked with hundreds of clients in person and online. She advocates implementing a truly evidence-based approach. So she likes to blend recommendations from the literature with her own practical experience. And she adjusts appropriately for the individual. You can connect with Lauren on Instagram at lauren.cs1. Today, we're also joined by Dr. James Bagley, research professor extraordinaire from SF State. Uh, We get into training, research, squats, and much, much more. I had a ton of fun with these two, and it was a pleasure to have them on. So please welcome Lauren Clenzo and Dr. Bagley. Now, here is a man who will show you how to feel better, look better, I feel good. Follow your gut, do what you love to do. Hello, how are you today? Excited for our chat. Oh, yeah. Yes. I'll get somebody to take a picture of us, too, so we can put it up on the gram. Oh, you got to gram it, buddy. Doesn't happen if it's not on the gram, <laughs> right? Your so, coffee didn't happen unless you took a picture no. of it. I, I, have, I uh, post maybe monthly. <laughs> on the Instagram? <laughs> you got to be like, but, you know, Andy. I've been trying to get my stories going. No, I, I, don't, I don't like to feel like I want to be on it all the time. It's kind of a toxic... Yeah, I think social media, like in general, that I started doing something where I just delete the app from my phone complete. Like I'll delete Instagram, I'll delete Facebook, I'll delete Twitter, and I'll just let that go for as long as it goes until I remember like, oh, maybe I should get on there again. I've put it on the second page, so (laughs) I have to swipe so it's not constantly staring at me in the face. I know. I'm doing it more for work now, kind of. After talking to Andy, you got to listen to his. So I talked to him about a lot about social media stuff and about how to use it, how not to, and just be more of a producer and not a consumer. Mm. So I don't even, I might like posts, but I don't really cruise around on there looking at posts anymore. You know, I'm almost, I have my posts planned, kind of like I'm, I got to post this. And so I'll either do it at night or in the morning or whatever when I have time, but I don't know, do it more like a business almost, mm. but you get addicted to it still. Yeah, how do you stay not on consuming it? I uh, just consume other things, like read other stuff. I don't know. But I found out that I think I like being on Instagram more than Facebook. 
Facebook's mostly garbage now. Yeah. Well, they lost $150 billion overnight, right? <laughs> That's insane. That's so nuts. Yeah. I feel like because of where I'm at in my journey academically mm-hmm. and professionally that I haven't earned the right to be a content creator. No, you're a creator. Or, you know, what you got to do is not just create, but be a curator content curator you have a lot of knowledge to where you can repost or find articles because most people don't know anything think about how much like we always talk about how much we learned in undergrad even in undergrad exercise science sean and i went to undergrad together we only overlapped at cuesta but same program what do you want to post yeah well i it's a sort of a feeling of i know there's so much bad information or um, poorly framed information, misunderstood. So I, I realized I could be somebody to provide valuable information. So in some ways, y- you you want to be a part of that because you see people going to social media to consume that kind of information for nutrition, for exercise. It's important to a lot of people. Um, but I I just I also f- think I want to have something original to offer i want to have a voice that is unique and otherwise it just feels like you're regurgitating other people's stuff yeah yeah i've struggled with like uh imposter syndrome before like <laughs> trying to help people out and stuff like that yeah. but we forget i do online challenges now for guys um primarily exercise nutrition and then we put them in a private facebook group and they kind of go through the challenge together and every week we have weekly coaching calls and i do a lot of live videos in there and just kind of tell them about different motivation things and how to stay disciplined. And I forget that like, I mean, we chat about stuff and it, we're chatting about confocal microscopes and things like that, right? That's like our group of people. And so in my brain, it was like, oh, it's gotta be here or like up. And I'll get questions like, hey, how much water should I drink in a day? You know, I'm like, oh, I forgot about all this stuff. That is just very basic. Yeah, I think we have a certain threshold for, or uh, we need to be better about how we expect people to consume information um, and, and 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 the level at which they do, right? Because we have so many people who are interested in exercise, interested in nutrition, interested in their health, but that is one of many interests. So that's why the bite size content is so preferable because for us we're in it mm-hmm. um it, it's it's so important to us and we want the details we want that high level but f- um for the average person if you think about how how much information you're consuming in a day and then exercise and nutrition is just a small piece of that then eh, we can't expect people to know much <laughs> Yeah. Everybody just wants the answer too. And sometimes the answer is not easy or it's different for most people, you know, different for everybody. Cause you could have your American college of sports medicine guidelines of 150 minutes of moderate exercise per week, lifting twice a week or whatever for health. But then somebody wants to cut fat or build muscle or whatever, you're going to have to tweak it a lot. And it's not just going to be the one size fits all thing that everybody wants. Like, what's the answer? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what are you trying to do? And how important is it? Yeah. I mean, because let's say you can get 80% doing X and then that extra 10 or 20% is going to take this much more of a time investment. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? 
for most people, probably not. No. Yeah. It's not something to geek out on. Like we, like we're, you know, like you said, we're in it. Like we, it's not hard for us to geek out on a confocal microscope for four hours, you know? But I think, yeah, I started to, to vet some of the guys coming into the challenges. And one of the big questions was like, why now? Like, why'd you click on the ad to do the challenge? And if it's, ah, I think it'd be cool to like take up my shirt off at the beach, man. Like <laughs> you're not going to do the things you need to do to, you know, to, to get those results. But if it's something deeper and it means a lot to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where I see that kind of, kind of transition and change. I think we also tend to blame people for being bad consumers. And I do, uh, you know, mm-hmm. people need to be more discerning about where they get their information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and then I, I think if, if you really take a step back and say, oh, well, when we don't know something and it's of moderate importance, what do you do? Do you Google? Do you ask people you trust? Do you look for a kind of popular opinion? Yeah. <laughs> All of it. So, so you can't blame people for treating exercise and, and nutrition that way because, uh, you know, when, there are plenty of things that either it doesn't matter that much and so I'm going to go for convenience or cost. or mm-hmm. um, And if we didn't treat certain uh, aspects of our life like that, it would be paralyzing. <laughs> you know, every time you bought anything, you'd be... Learn, have, you'd have to learn everything about it, right? Yeah. Analysis paralysis, especially with like every piece of information. You could Google like 30-day program and you'd get a billion hits, right. you know? Mm-hmm. It's extremely hard to be able to do that. And then there's so much bad info though. And that's what kind of our job is as educators and trainers and stuff is to like sift out through all the BS and find what's good. And sometimes it's starting, it's like, seems easy, but all right, well, let's Google it. What's your first five things you find on Google? Like probably a couple of them are going to be okay, but a couple are going to be some random blog post that some dude posted four years ago that doesn't know what's going on. But, you know, so and not everybody's going to read scientific articles either. So you got to make those digestible and, you know, go to things like for supplements, examine.com is a good place to start, right? But it's not going to tell you everything, but it's going to be semi non-biased. It's going to have a lot of info. But if somebody asked me about a supplement I don't know about, that's what I'll do. You know, I'm not going to... Do you think people should be reading scientific articles? I think it would be, well, ideally everybody, that'd be great. Everybody should, but not everybody has the background knowledge to do it. And I think that's when I teach undergrad ex-phys, most of it is giving people the tools to be able to, not just the jargon, understand it, but be able to put everything in context. Because you read one study that says whatever X supplement increased muscle mass by 5% in this group. They're like, wow, that's cool. But then look at the control group. They increased by 4.6%. So maybe it didn't do anything, but they just don't have, most people don't have the background to look at the methods and statistics and stuff to figure out how it works. And understand scientific literature. Like I like your analogy of a brick in the wall Mm -hmm. type thing. Or recently I heard that like science is like a big freighter, like a big, huge ship and it's going in a direction. And then when you, like one scientific article pulls it a little bit this way. And so when you, when you have like a few hundred or a few thousand of those that say the same thing finally over and over again, oh, it'll start to, you know, like move mm-hmm. it this way. I was like, I thought that was an interesting way to look at it too. Because I have a lot of friends who's like, oh, I found this article or I read this headline, 
most oh, yeah. of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I saw this thing. It said one in five people, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Where was that? I can't remember. Okay, mm-hmm. we're off to a bad start. <laughs> you know, it usually was a headline sensationalized headline yeah. that was like actually a really cool study but it didn't cure cancer or whatever <laughs> like you know yeah yeah i think there's a huge misunderstanding of the purpose of science and it's not to find the single right answer because that's not how science works yeah. um and what i mean one of the biggest takeaways i, I was telling you this earlier from uh training studies and being involved in training studies is the difference between individuals. So we we're going to report an average result of let's say muscle gain or fat loss, but that when you look at individual data points, you have somebody gained 15 pounds of muscle and somebody lost two on the same program. So that's wild. And and it's clear that if if you're going to be evidence-based um, in your practice, then yeah, it gives you a place to start, but then you put on your coaching hat and you make adjustments for the individual. Yeah. I think that's a big, big thing. And ask, ask and kind of listen more even than tell, you know, than telling or, or telling them even your opinion. I ask a lot of guys that are like, what should I do for this? Why do you want to do this? Have you done that before? How does that work in the past? You know what I mean? Like, Cause they'll, oh yeah, I'm not very, it, it feels bad when I do this. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How, what are, you know, what are we talking about here? I think that's, that's pretty big. Yeah. Just identifying what their goals are, short-term and long-term goals. Like we always, goal setting, that's number one. Then this, there's like a formula you can do if you're trying to get people to change. Right. But I think just knowing what they want is the hardest part. <laughs> yeah. Why don't like, we put emphasis on it? You mentioned yeah. it. Like uh, how is, how important is that to you? I think that's a huge question that's never asked, you know? And you look at how diets failing all the time and it's either an unrealistic goal or a nebulous goal or just a a poor approach because you're starting something that's completely unsustainable. And then it's, it's funny because with the way we approach so many other things in life, there's an expectation that what works for you isn't necessarily what's best for me. If we were talking about the best car for us, um, or maybe the, the place we'd like to live, or the best hair products, mm-hmm. there's inherent differences because we're different. But for some reason that doesn't apply in fitness or nutrition, there has to be one best way and it, and it has to be one size fits all, which is just really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier about studied a little bit how we run statistics, right? You're always trying to do T-tests and ANOVAs because you're comparing the means of groups. But what if we're all in the same group and right the mean might be like 20 or whatever, but you could have people at four, could have people at 30 and you know, you got your standard deviation, but we're treating again, everybody the same as if they're gaining or losing mass or whatever it is the same, but you got to take it individually. But that just makes the stats really hard. Cause then you're like, mm-hmm. we can't say anything, you know? So it's like, uh, it's true. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it's also a problem with something like a meta analysis. So once we have, a, a, let's say 10, 20 studies in a particular topic, then they'll often conduct meta-analyses to say, oh, is there some takeaway that we can um, report from this body of literature at this point? And 
they can be problematic because you look at the actual studies included and it's different populations and it's different methodologies and it's different measurement tools to, to assess body fat or muscle thickness or whatever. Um, and so, uh, you know, you just, it, it's nice to say, here's the sum of, of all of this data, but yeah, there's, there are some limitations there that are important to be aware of. Yeah, I think science is starting to change now. Um, there's a couple big projects going on in exercise science. One is Motropack, the molecular transducers of physical activity. Then another one that we're kind of getting involved with is called the Friend Registry. It's called Fitness Registry. I don't know what the rest of it stands for, but it's basically collecting VO2 max tests, right? Like maximum aerobic capacity tests from labs all over the world. And so you have to do a certain, your measurements have to be really similar, right? If you're using it, you got a few different companies that make these devices to measure your oxygen consumption. You have to go by this certain criteria that's all set. But in the end of the day, we hope that we can compare data from Japan to here to New York to Italy to whatever. And, you know, there's currently tens of thousands of max tests in different populations, everything. So with that, then we can mine the data and start doing really interesting epidemiological studies on a really difficult quote-unquote measure that we could never have done that before you'd usually have a subject population of 20 or 30 in a study but so doing stuff like this where you're getting big labs from all around the world to work together i think has got to be the future if we're going to move things forward yeah and trying to not draw i guess specific conclusions from something that that's i think that's got to be really hard to not to say like this is what this means you know because when it's that general and that broad it's really hard to then well, that's the idea to have 10,000 or 20,000 tests and then you can pull out, all right, I want all the males age 18 to 21 and I want all the one males that have trained for the past six because we have some data on their background and then you can start comparing those and make some more generalizations. But When you look at a body of work that is much, much larger, so medicine um, or even certain supplements like vitamin D, you know, something that there's been a ton of work on, then you, there's a lot more to something like a, a meta-analysis just because you have so much data. But our industry isn't there yet. There aren't enough people doing this kind of work to, to really have that kind of abundance of data. Costs money. Money and time. Money and time. And everybody's going to be a little different, especially on a VO2 max. I remember you have a nice fancy one here, but in college, we didn't even have a harness or anything. It was like, when you're done, we'll catch you. Yeah. (laughs) Treadmill tests can get pretty sketchy if you're going 20% incline running as fast as you can. I'm pretty sure our center operating procedure was like, kind of be 45 degree to the person in our kinesiology lab in case they like put the biggest, strongest person in the back. (laughs) It's also the uh, measurements evolve over time. Like look at the, the fiber type analysis and that's really tough to start to compare studies that are kind of reporting the same thing or what sounds like the same thing, but they didn't measure it the same way or mm-hmm. didn't take into account all of the same components. Exactly. So you're, Lauren, you're working down in Fullerton right now. What are you doing for fiber type typing down there? Yeah, I'm working in Dr. Andy Galpin's lab, and we are analyzing single muscle fibers for fiber type. And then uh, additionally looking at kind of protein 
activation at certain time points. So the, the biopsies they're taking for the, these the studies that are going on currently have multiple time points. So let's say you take a biopsy at rest and then somebody starts to exercise and then you see what happens over the course of that period. Um, and this has been a really interesting experience for me because I never had the the bench work, the wet lab kind of technical experience. So doing the like what you think of as science, you know, the mixing chemicals and Getting your lab coat pipetting on and your goggles. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Like the one liners, the camera looks at you, it pans over and you're like, Science. Yeah. And then you keep going back. Yeah. So getting a silver nitrate all over my hands on a regular basis stuff's expensive silver nitrate that'll kill uh wolverine or what is it <laughs> vampires or what what kills <laughs> with silver silver bullet, <laughs> silver bullet. what does it do oh, to your hands though <laughs> uh, so that's used for the staining um oh. of the uh, to actually delineate which fiber type it is so uh you're if you get it on yourself, then stains you it too. Stains you. <laughs> stains the gel. It stains you. That's awesome. What changes do you, do you expect in uh, like resting muscle versus uh, like active when you guys are doing biopsies when it comes to protein or like what did what, like what's the hypothesis or what are you guys kind of trying to test up for? Well, they are looking at activation of AMPK, um, which will kind of ebb and flow during uh, during exercise and the it, it could potentially be differentially activated between men and women um but i would say i i don't know enough about the data as a whole to really speak on that and maybe you can yeah. chime in i think the way to think about it, the ampk is the energy sensor of the cell okay. right so as you exercise you start using energy and some of that energy will end up being glycogen and stuff like that out of your muscle cell. When energy is being used, then AMPK starts to ramp up mm. and it tells the cell either to store more energy away. Um, so this is where you get like that window of gains, quote unquote, after you exercise or whatever, telling everything to be stored away or to conserve energy. And so I think what you guys are doing is you're measuring that protein as it's activated after exercise. And then there's some downstream targets that are related to protein synthesis and fat utilization and stuff that they're looking at to see how those work between men and women after lifting oh, or was it, uh, what was the protocol? It was a cycling protocol or something. Yeah. Hit. A hit cycling. Okay. Yeah. Maybe see what's like an optimal, an optimal range to be able to, to like crush AMP and really activate that. Yeah. AMPK, like what the, um, yeah, AMP is AMP yeah. kinase, right? So it's an enzyme that's working on on certain proteins afterwards. But yeah, and the idea is it's different between fiber types, fast twitch and slow twitch, which we know that pretty well now, but also between men and women and also between people that are trained or untrained, right? So well, you guys are working on some pretty elite people. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Can't name names. No. Yeah. <laughs> Confidentiality. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. Okay, so what's the process? Because uh, I've had biopsy where you're just chilling, but then the other one is like hit, 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 bike, and then we'll take another one? Yeah. Oh, does it feel different or no? Oh, I, I haven't personally 
gone through the process. You haven't done it yet? I oh. haven't. You got to do that before you I leave said Fullerton. I said f- I'm not fit enough to. good <laughs> <laughs> excuse. Uh, not, not on the spectrum. <laughs> uh, my data will be useless to you. No, I, I, I actually have, have plans for Saturday morning. Cool. I'm, I, I'm going to uh, be the, the guinea pig. And then once Andy has biopsied me, I will biopsy him you know, full experience. Yeah. You got to do that. Yeah, I would never to. make anybody do something I wouldn't do. <laughs> that is super unethical. If you're making people do stuff and you wouldn't do it, or at least try it. Yeah. I mean, after doing whatever five sets of that cycling, I'll probably be sick too. Not fit enough, but, <laughs> I would but be wrecked. I think the biopsy is the least of your worries after that training. You're just going to lay down and not care what happens because it hurts so bad. <laughs> you yeah. Know what, I mean? what are you guys doing? Yeah, like- take a, take as much, take as many biopsies as you, you want. want. Just afterwards. don't make me do that. <laughs> yeah. Sprint cycling. Does it end up being like a close to ma- maximal or trying to get close to maximal, like a VO2 type stress test or? Uh- it's more in the realm of a Wingate because okay. it's um, shorter periods of, you know, maximal yeah. exertion so Wingate is 30 seconds all out on the bike as yeah. hard as you can and what are these intervals like a minute or something yeah oh that's rough you made us do a like a semi Wingate just for conditioning a few months ago when we were out there with those oh, yeah. old bikes and that was terrible <laughs> we do some fun stuff for training huh so bad <laughs> i'm astonished to see all of these the uh like my grandfather's uh, what are those called? Those bikes, uh, the assault type oh, bikes assault come into bikes. play. Yeah. Those used to be in like my grandpa's basement. Like those <laughs> no, were like, they're the, antiques, right? Yeah, yeah. But they're terrible. Everything comes back around, right? Yeah. Like barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells. These are hundreds of years or a hundred years old at least. And now it's what everybody's doing again. Yeah. I think we were trying to figure out why, cause that's concentric and eccentric on your arms and pretty much concentric on your legs. And I was wondering probably the worst, the only way to make that even worse is to clip in your feet and be able to pull up as mm. well. It'd be so bad. Yeah. It'd be rough. Not good. Well, cool. What, uh, what else do you want to work on or like, what do you, where do you want to go to school? What's that look like? So I'm currently a graduate research and teaching associate at the university of South Florida in Tampa. And I have another nine months there. I'm working on a training study looking at muscle thickness in uh, in females who have already been resistance training okay. and then split them into two groups. They'll do two different volumes of training and then see if they gain the same amount of muscle or if perhaps one group gains more than the other. Uh, there's been a, a pretty fair number of studies at this point um, to point to sort of volume being an important um, predictor of or programming variable if if you want muscle growth. Um, But the majority of those have been conducted in men, Mm. elderly, or combined men and women, and, you know, no um, consideration for differences between sexes. So I've been looking also at the kind of male versus female differences in response to resistance training and there are a variety of interrelated factors, but um, they, they're, it's potentially some really interesting to look at and, you know, hormones, differences in kind of muscle tendon adaptation, differences in um, starting body composition, and then also kind of rates of progress. So there's a lot to consider. 
That's cool. What age groups are you guys doing for? For this study, uh, it's 18 to 35. Okay. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, it's hard to say sometimes when it's like you look at a study and it's like 85. You're like, oh, I don't know if that is too good for me. Yeah, Yeah, there's definitely some changes that happen with age and, and muscle. Yeah, and it's not just, I mean, you can look at the 85 years older, 75 and older is one group, but then there's like that 40 or 45 to 55 years old, you're going to be a lot different than if you're 25 or 35 years old. It's like, I mean, it is really a lifespan. You can't just say young, middle-aged and old. There's going to be declines in different aspects as you age. Like VO2, you can hold on to for a long time. You could have a max VO2 at age 35, 38, but muscle strength, you're probably peaking in your 20s. And then by 35, you're going to start. No. Unfortunately. Don't tell me that, Dr. B. We're getting there. (laughs) I've been looking forward to this old man strength, that this mythical old old man man strength strength. is real, I think. And I think it has to do with (laughs) tendons and ligaments and stuff. (laughs) But I mean, I've got some old man strength now. but Already? No, I'm getting there. But my endurance is gone, though. It's like, if I can catch you, you better better watch out. (laughs) That's awesome, man. I think we're living sort of in a time, though, when... You, you don't have that many people who have been resistance training for their whole lives, mm-hmm. right? Or I mean, for since whatever, young adulthood, because you have these elderly people who are starting to exercise. Okay, you know, what are the implications there? Um, and then you have the young people who are healthy and exercising, but is how much, how much of a difference will it make for the 80 year old who has been lifting since they were 20 mm. versus intervening at age 50 or 70? Yeah. yeah we, we don't have a lot of that stuff. Cause like the gym thing didn't really happen until what the 70 kind of well, like the, that's the like way the we think about the gym was like thing. the sixties and seventies, yeah. right? People started jogging. So you got people that have done endurance training for their, almost their whole lives. But maybe not resistance. No, not unless they were really athletic, but super small population. But you have a big group, like kind of like you were saying, fifties and sixties people that late life starters that start exercising hardcore when they retire and maybe get into CrossFit type exercise or something and then become real fit, like the fittest in their life at age mm. 60. And that's an interesting group too, because can you get all those positive adaptations late and does that carry over as you get even older or is it too late? Once you're 50, you should probably just give up. (laughs) I don't think that's true. No, (laughs) but I don't think there's been any studies on that either. The late life exercisers. Yeah, that'd be, you'd control it against somebody who just has never exercised and will never exercise, I guess. And then. Yeah, you might not even need a control group. I just like to see what happens with the one group if you started them at 55 or 60 and then trained them for 10, 15 years, what they could get to if they had never done anything before. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting to see CrossFit games are on right now and they have masters mm-hmm. that were playing live today. And like if you were to tell me maybe five, 10 years ago, oh yeah, we're just going to have this like 65-year-old dude. He's going to deadlift 315 like 20 or 30 times. He's going to go run around. He's going to do something else. Be like, no way. Let's not. Oh, is he like, was he an elite athlete? And now you see it and you're like, oh, wow, that totally blew my mind. You see it in powerlifting too. There's a really huge masters group who somehow have made it that far without getting injured to the point of having to retire. Yeah. Probably injured too. And then keep going. Yeah. Injured to no return though, like on a bench because those, yeah, bench, pole and and squat. Yeah, my shoulders are jacked. I wouldn't be able to do that from swimming in water polo, you know. <laughs> you see, you need more mobility. It's true. I'll fix, it. I'll fix everything. I need a shoulder replacement, probably. <laughs> yeah, 
I get schooled by going to the Cairo. I'm like, I'm just really kyphotic because of water polo. And he's like, wasn't that like 10 years ago? I'm like, dang it. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I think some people are just better suited for certain types of exercise. I mean, my mom is in her 60s and she's been running uh, five days a week for her whole life and, and still I run a mile and I'm like my knee hurts, my hip hurts, my foot hurts. <laughs> Dang, you didn't get those genetics. Did well, not. you were, you said you were in track though, so you were you were a runner. Yeah. <laughs> Sprint work. A sprinter. <laughs> yeah, sprinter's different. You're not putting that much mileage on. 100 huh? meters and I'm, I'm out. Yeah, I swam the 50 and the 100. That was it. I was a distance swimmer. I just like the pain, <laughs> the long term torture. <laughs> coach knew how to if we if i was late or something he would just throw me in the mile that's how he would torture me yeah he'd throw me in the 100 and i'd die on my short sprints <laughs> terrible that's good so what what uh on that study that you guys are doing what volumes and things are you looking at is it like a frequency versus volume in like a weekly in a given week how many sets and reps that you're manipulating or um yeah, so the the difference is just number of sets so they'll train okay. they'll both train three days a week and I'm actually isolating it just to the lower body. Cool. Um, because given that they're already trained, the amount of muscle we can expect them to grow is not, you know, enormous. And so it, uh, I'm the volume difference is just in the lower body exercises, even though they're doing full body workouts. And then we'll measure muscle thickness of the quads, hamstrings, and hopefully glutes if we can get that test retest reliability. Muscle thickness of glutes? Mm -hmm. How are you going to do that? Um, so it has been done in physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And basically you your your landmarks are greater trochanter and ischial tuberosity. Mm -hmm. And then you have them you find a point between those two landmarks the where you get in a uh, good enough visibility of the glute max. Mm -hmm. um, and you're laying prone on your stomach or what? You're actually yeah, laying on like your side, side? Okay. with your... Uh, like knee they, at a 90 or something? The, the, the paper I read, they, they called it the paint me... Like a French girl <laughs> position. Okay. I kind of <laughs> So it's like this. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then you're... So you're, I was thinking like just say, prone on your stomach, but I don't know. Yeah. Get well, into the Titanic by, pose. It, <laughs> the Titanic yes, pose. exactly. By um, externally rotating, mm -hmm. it, they get v better visibility. Okay. Interesting. And then a measure, a measure of... of thi uh, well, so when you measure muscle thickness, you need to see where where skin, where, where fat ends and muscle begins, where muscle ends and bone begins, and then you can measure those two kind of, the distance between those two lines. Okay. And they use ultrasound. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Sean's dad is an ultrasound guy. Yeah, he yeah. did radiology for 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, he could probably come out and do that for us. The new machines are cool because yeah. they can warp the, um, the, the, they can warp it around bone. So now some of the things that they're doing are like before they could never technically really see into like your spine, depending on like cervical spine. Right. But now they're starting to be able to like warp that around or like going through ribs. 
Mm. It used to be like breathe, breathe out here, go through a rib and then mm -hmm. have to go around. Now they're starting to be able, their machines aren't out yet, but they're starting to be able to like warp around a rib. So it doesn't matter. You could just do this. That's crazy. Super weird. So now the mm. um, transducer, instead yeah. of being flat, it's like this, like kind of like the TVs that are curved around a little bit. Mm. Super, super weird, cool technology. So it's concave. Yeah. Because mm. I've seen the convex. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I've been uh, like a clinical subject on some <laughs> like the new mach machines trying to get like the them through clinical trials and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know if that, I meant maybe the new ones could help. Well, you'd still want to see bone, I guess, if you're, if you're looking at. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you have to, because yeah. you need some, uh, just a kind of point of reference to conduct the measurement. But anyway, the, like I said, the, the glute would, is a more of a nice to have, mm -hmm. um, it, this, this has been done a lot in the quads and, and pretty frequently in the hamstrings as well. So the, uh, the training protocol is a lot of squats, RDLs and hip thrusts, and then some kind of other lower body accessory work too. Yeah. Hip thrusts. I wish were something that I would have found a long time ago. If you were to told me to go back and find something to do to make everything better. Hip mm -hmm. thrust would have been that. feels great when you've been sitting like this all day in a chair. Cause I'm always like hunched over my computer, you know? Oh, and it's humbling right now. How <laughs> terrible I was when I started. Like give Your me the body bar. weight is tough for some people. Uh, single leg body weight, oh, yeah. body weight, barbell just by itself. I was just out in San Diego um, visiting Brett Contreras and I went to his gym and he has three or four different machines now for hip thrusting. One of them is actually cable loaded and I love oh. that. So it's, it's like a seatbelt. Oh, cool. And then you're, you, you have a platform to put your feet. Okay. So it's kind of shoulders elevated, feet elevated, and then, and then you change the weight stack just like you would in any other cable and yeah. Oh, what a awesome. cool thing. What a cool idea. And okay. you can uh, add bands to it as well. Uh, yeah, he kind of This is called the booty builder. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> awesome. He kind of repopularized hip thrust-ish a little bit. And I guess we could give him, Brett, most of the credit for that, don't you think? Or Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure, making it popular. I mean, it's been around for so long, but you always see people making their makeshift little thing in the corner and you're slipping around because your bench is sliding. Like, you know, yeah. having that as a, like a machine is kind of... Interesting. Yeah, I always had to go on the lay down leg curl mm -hmm. and mm. bring it all the way down and flip it around and be that weird guy <laughs> in like the corner of the 24 hour fitness, <laughs> yeah. like doing tempo work and holding at the top. I was like, come on, what is this guy doing? <laughs> As you set up your camera too for <laughs> filming, <laughs> all the people are like, are you going to use that machine or what? <laughs> <laughs> not how you're supposed God, to use bro, it. Brett, Instagram guys, okay? <laughs> Brett told me this is the way to do it. Yeah. It's so goofy. Hashtag glute guy. <laughs> yeah. He probably has it taken. Oh yeah, that's his, right? For nice. sure. Yeah, that's good. It's funny how stuff comes around. I mean, because we got all these gymnastics rings and that Swedish bars, you know, the ladder, all this stuff from, you know, a long time ago and it's just coming back. Yeah, that's nice. But, yeah. well, okay, so you guys are doing that, controlling for calories? Like in a We'll have them surplus? keep their nutrition the same. Same, okay. okay. So we'll do a, you know, pre and post diet assessment. Okay. Oh, that'd be good. I wonder if somebody starts to just pack on the surplus and they start going, getting after it. If you're going to see a lot of 
uh, variants there, but yeah. So they there have been two studies on in men that looked at kind of moderate versus very high volume. Um, it was called a modified German volume training study, and that found that the the group doing the higher volume did not benefit. Uh, oh, interesting. So okay. there's, and I mean, you have to imagine that doing more and more and more past a certain point is you're going to see kind of diminishing returns and possibly no benefit. And then maybe at some point you start to get worse. Um, but we don't really have the, the data to show that. Yeah. Mostly the work has compared one set versus three sets or one, three, and five. Um, and there's not a lot to, to look at. Hey, what if we do 50? <laughs> That's nuts. I'd be, I'd be curious too to see, I've been messing around with like keeping volume relatively the same and then trying to increase frequency a little bit too. So we could almost like Right, we get that muscle stimulus, and then after what 48 hours, that's pretty much falling all the way off. I wonder if like bringing that frequency closer and kind of keeping the volume would be beneficial too. There's been a a good amount of work looking at, at training frequency as well, um, and I think mainly it looks like it's increasing frequency is an effective way to add volume. Gotcha. Um, so, because if imagine you're doing five sets twice a week, and then you add in a third day, and then maybe even scale back the number of sets. So now you're doing four sets three times a week. You've added volume. Okay. So um, you're like oh, that total volume for the week. Yeah, but okay. they've done it. You know, really extreme examples where volume is equated. So maybe you're you're training. You put all. Let's say you have ten sets. Put it all in one workout. Uh, split it into two, split it out into five. Does it make a difference? Um, and, and it looks like not really. Not too much. Um, but although possibly um, for the bench press, Greg Knuckles just came out with a an interesting analysis of looking at kind of the, the, the potential benefit of increasing training frequency for benching. And it looks like there might be something to that. That's what I was thinking. Upper body, lower body is always going to be a little different because think about your lower body is always kind of under tension, right? It's always being loaded. So it's used to more frequency. Mm-hmm. Upper body is not used to doing anything mm-hmm. almost. So as soon as you start probably increasing the volume or, or frequency on there, you're going to see some crazy changes. I mean, there's not been any fiber type studies of the pecs because that's just super hard to get to. I would never biopsy your pec because there's a lot of vasculature and like your heart. <laughs> but um, I imagine... Sacrifice for the science. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can take pecs of animal models, but I imagine you'd see a, a huge fiber type shift if you started messing around with the volume of your upper body for sure. You can measure tricep, I guess. Biopsy. Yeah. Maybe delt too. Mm-hmm. You could do posterior delt. Anything that's like more lateral because you just don't want to be sticking a needle towards your thorax because you have... <laughs> <laughs> you get an ER nurse or somebody to do that. Like, don't just, yeah. you know, I'm going to do this as a student, you know. <laughs> not a, a not a grad student? <laughs> <Yeah>. No. <laughs> that sounds but, Yeah, scary. that's a good point. That's the limitations of science, right? Because you can, you could probably do muscle thickness of your chest and stuff. That would be good measures, but it'd be hard to get any cellular numbers from I've that. I've never seen muscle thickness of the pecs done. 
I don't think. Be interesting study. You see biceps and triceps. Yeah, and those are pretty easy, huh? Quads, pretty much. Yeah. That's my excuse for why I've never grown my calves. I'm just, I'm on them all day. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's part of it. Yeah. If you want to see gains in your legs, don't walk at all and just do your heavy lifting like, you know, every other day. You'll see some big gains, but. Do calves daily, maybe. You might yeah. have to. I mean, think about it. You're on your calves all day long. They're not mm -hmm. getting any. They're like, yeah, we're good. You yeah. don't need to grow. We got yeah. you. Yeah. A lot of slow twitch in the soleus too. So you might see some gastroc gains, but. 10 second eccentrics. <laughs> Nice. Uh, yeah, we've done some eccentric studies at Fullerton too, some bicep curl studies and some calf raise studies here. Oh man, those suck. Get sore. Major doms. Yeah. What are your uh, highest volume girls doing in sets like per week? It'll be five sets of each exercise three times a week. Cool. So it'll be, oh. high. it's high. Oh, it's yeah. high. So like you're doing 15 sets of squats, 15 sets of RDLs, 15 sets of hip thrusts. Oh yeah. That's high. Yeah. That's awesome. And then just trying to have them sleep and recover and feel good. Well, interestingly, um, and this kind of speaks to the culture today in fitness, um, the 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 main kind of pushback I'm getting from subject recruitment is so I can't do anything outside, like I, I you know I can't I can't lift up more days. It's only three workouts a week, and oh. you know my, my response is of course this is a crazy amount of volume you're gonna <laughs> be wrecked, <laughs> but everyone just wants to do more. I have noticed that in the online challenge groups, I just do three workouts per, per week. They're they're full body, and I get a lot of like well, but I work out seven days per week now. <laughs> and I'm like, this might feel a little different because they're, I mean, they're, you know, 45 to an hour full body or even more depending on it. And it's not like, let me mess around with some like presses here and there. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, and it's not heavy. It's, but it's a lot. Yeah. You know? And if you go all out, you're, I don't know if you're going to want to do seven days a week, man. Uh, and, and it could be suboptimal because you're, you're <laughs> zero recovery. Like, eh. Yeah, I think that's the most forgotten part of programming is rest and recovery. I mean, everybody wants, like you said, wants to keep going, but if you keep progressing at some point, you're going to crash, you're going to overtrain or get injured or something. And it's like, sometimes it, it feels weird to train really hard. And then you're like, I'm not sore today. I should go exercise. But like that doesn't, that, that means you're doing good, right? If you're not sore today and you're not exercising, you need that recovery day. And then yeah. tomorrow you can hit it just harder. But Yeah. I mean, interestingly, it looks like soreness is not a very good marker of you know, pr productive stimulus for growth. Right. And that's what everybody thinks of, though. They're like, if I'm not sore, I didn't do anything. No, not necessarily. Yeah. There's three. We just chatted about that the other day. Oh, yeah. Metabolic. Because mm -hmm. um, you're still going to get a lot of metabolic stimulus without being sore even. That's like the blood flow restriction training. You shouldn't be sore at all doing that. But you can see size gains just doing that. Low load. Yeah. And if you're too sore to train and get the volume in per week, then like, what do you do? You know, what are you, what yeah, are you doing? And the conversation I think is still up for debate of, of you know, is, is muscle damage a contributing factor for muscle growth or is it a, um, a side effect of training? Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to kind of tease out muscle damage specifically because these these factors that you talk about with tension and and with metabolic stress 
and, and damage, they're all happening at the same time with training. So you can't say, I want the tension without the damage, or I want just the damage without the tension. Like, no. Yeah, we know one, muscle. One, one is, is sort of, so yeah, it's, it, it's a tough question to, to really fully answer. Yeah, how can you not be sore, but still measure tension? And it all happens at the same time. Well, be, I mean, the, the damage is caused by the loading. Um, so I, I guess you could try to recreate the damage another way, but then you couldn't really say, well, this is the kind of damage that occurs with exercise. Yeah. So, yeah. And then we get into if it's moral or not, because what do we do, like shocking people to get their muscles to be damaged? I mean, it may not yeah. be exercised at that point. Well, there's a lot of animal models too. So I never really did animal research myself, but I'm around a lot of people that do it. And I was out at the University of Kentucky a couple of weeks ago, seeing them do, you know, animal surgeries to, mm. after they train mice and stuff, they, you know, take the certain muscles out. They're able to, you talk about muscle thickness, they just take the muscle out and weigh it. Like it's, so that's a perfect, um, say you got 20% hypertrophy because we weighed that muscle. You know, mm. we know whatever compared to the control group, but they're able to do this, this hypertrophy model where they, you know, say you're looking at one of the muscles in the calves, like the gastroc or whatever, they'll cut the soleus or just remove it. And then they can see the gastroc growing because it's t picking up slack what the other muscle is supposed to do. And so that's how they do their hypertrophy models, just looking at that. But, and then that, you know, it's not going to cause, it'll cause initial probably muscle damage, but as it gets bigger and bigger and adds more, more size, then you're just seeing something. It's, it's not physiological, but it's, it's a, probably the best way to look at hypertrophy in animals, at least. Mm. I don't know. Crazy stuff. There's definitely a lot you can do in animals that would be impossible or just inappropriate. Like for transgenics, <laughs> like just change your genes. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. Although in, in psychology, there's a lot of really questionably questionable research that went down in the past. Yeah, the, the year's undergrad was in psychology, right? Yes. We said. So what's going on in the psychology world now? I heard that they're unable to reproduce a lot of studies. That's true. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, yeah and there's interesting um, sort of nature-nurture conversations in, in psychology now. Um, when I was in school and, and probably you too, the, we were taught they were kind of, there was this, these debates the nature versus nurture is it how you uh, is it your genes or is it how you were raised and um it's it's they're clearly intertwined and mm -hmm. because you're looking at not only the the actual genes but also the expression of the genes based on how you live your life um and so this uh they've really kind of changed the way they approach that whole paradigm. Interesting. Yeah. Looking at like biology versus how yeah, like society so, you know, and are, like are you the way you are, um, you know, when you, when you're born and then that's sort of it, or is it how you were brought up? Yeah. I think it's gotta be a little bit of both. that yeah. you have in life. Yeah. Gotta be a little bit of both. Yeah, I think a lot of the psychology studies in the past were done, obviously, like most studies at a university. So mm -hmm. you got your 18 to 20, 
four-year-olds or whatever and then it was always historically done in white males because that's mm. you know over the last hundred something years it's been the majority of people in u.s colleges so taking that exact same study that was done on 18 year old white males and you try to redo it in you know 55 year old you know people from china or whatever you're going to see totally different results and that's probably a lot of it's cultural right i mean it's kind of the way you grew up and how you see the world which was never really taken into account back in the day yeah and if you wanted free pizza that day or not yeah probably that's how we pay our students in food <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think uh i mean some of the older psych studies are really fascinating when you look at things like human behavior mm -hmm. um the you know ex experiments looking at how far will you go because i'm an authority figure telling you to do something, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a really famous study where they had somebody uh, at, quiz somebody who on the on another side of a screen. And so you would be asking questions, and then if they answered incorrectly, you would shock them. And, they, and you'd hear them kind of yell in pain. And the director of the study would say, please continue. Please continue. And then you'd see the... Um, the shock, the strength of the shock get progressively more intense. Um, and, the, you know, the, the person on the other side is just screaming in pain and, uh, you know, I'm begging you to stop. And the people would go, would keep going, keep administering the shock to the, to the point where, you know, you, you're seeing it's sort of some lethal um, gauge and the person on the other side stopped responding. Wow. And they, they kept, you know, just because you have somebody who is a researcher, a, a figure of authority telling you, continue. Yeah. And the person you're doing it to is like the other, right? It's not like your friend or something. It's just a ran like a random person that you don't know. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't know if we can do those <laughs> studies anymore. No, certainly <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> they would get, there'd be a lot of lawsuits after these ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we have the institutional review boards to go over all that and <laughs> make sure we're ethical. How long? These are they're back in the like 1800s, 1900s, like that kind of time. No, frame, I mean or? like in the during World War II, there was a ton of really. Was it like the 40s to 60s were kind of like when all this experimental psychology was yeah. coming out, like after okay. Sigmund Freud times and yeah. but before modern quote unquote times, I guess. Well, that's how you and I dive. That's how we got our dive tables. They were just, they would took Navy, Navy seals. seals and they would tell them to go down for a certain depth at a certain amount of time. And then if they got the bends, they were like too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how we got our dive tables. Well, they signed like, up for the Navy and they wanted to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then what, oh, they didn't get it. Okay, sweet. Next time, a little bit longer, a little deeper. I'm sure they put them right in the chamber right afterwards. To sure, help. but still, like, this is crazy. We're not past the IRB. There's some, there's some stuff that still goes on in, in medicine that, is kind of questionable, like uh, sham surgeries. Mm -hmm. That's I mean that stuff is fascinating, but like fake surgeries. Yeah. Oh, for placebo. So so let's say um, you need an ACL repair. Let's get a, a bunch of people. We're gonna really repair some of them, and then the others will just cut them open and sew them back on. Oh my god! And then they'll, they'll do kind of pain assessments three, six, 12 months later. And I mean, interestingly, the placebo effect is huge. Yeah. <laughs> and they generally don't really find a difference. 
Yeah, that is kind of nuts. Placebo has been shown to be like 50% plus depending on like the study you're looking at, right? Or a hundred percent depends on how you feel about it. Yeah, it depends on a lot. I know they're doing that um, in cancer research right now, looking at immunotherapies for like lung cancer and stuff. And they've got clinical trials going on, but they'll tell one group, you know, we're going to give you this immunotherapy and then they won't because it's a placebo group. But that, that sucks, right? <laughs> like yeah. This is like life and death, but you have to have that to be able to make any conclusions about if this works or not. So, you know, in decades later, we're going to benefit from all these things, but you know, they sign up for the study and it's not like they're not getting other treatments now. It's, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day you could do that, but they're still getting other treatments, but yeah. Yeah. Trying to get answers. I still use a placebo nocebo when I go to the Cairo, like I hurt my back a couple weeks ago and I went to the Cairo and I was just like, I just need you to tell me it's not disc. Like it's not disky. As long as you just say that, like, then I'm fine. If my brain thinks it's a muscle, I'll do some foam, foam rolling. I guarantee I'll get better like in a week or something. I just need you to be like, it's not disky. Cool. Good to go. <laughs> like, as long as you say that, then I'll get better. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, there's been comparisons of things like, oh, if it's a, a pill versus a powder, or if it's a, the colored pill or if it's a capsule versus a, um, and, and how basically when, when it's looked at as a more, uh, it, it, it must be doing something because it really looks like a, a legitimate drug. <laughs> so, you know, when it's a capsule with numbers on it, then it's, it must be doing something. It's not like a powder you pull from a bag and dump it in your <laughs> drink. <laughs> like, like, we did a lot of caffeine studies when I was in ma my master's at Fullerton and it was like the placebo, you could obviously tell that this didn't have caffeine. You know, caffeine's super bitter, right? Yeah. So you'd have some Gatorade. Well, that tastes like Gatorade. You have some Gatorade. That tastes like coffee. <laughs> it's like there's no way to mask that caffeine flavor unless you do pills. Hard. But you do a pill or yeah. like intravenous or something. I don't know. <laughs> Just shoot caffeine. <laughs> That's what I need in the morning. That's Wake what up. I need. There's like a little drip bag next to my bed. <laughs> I knew yeah. that our friend uh, Jeremy was a paramedic for a reason. Yeah. Put some caffeine in us in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Glucose plus caffeine. Perfect breakfast. Not bad. So if you could uh, design one study, Lauren, in your future, let's say you have unlimited money, unlimited time, unlimited participants, what would you want to do? That's a big question. I know. I love thinking <laughs> about this kind of stuff. You could go on forever. but What's your thesis going to yeah, be? <laughs> yeah, what's your dissertation going to be when you get your million-dollar grant? <laughs> yeah, I, there's so many questions. And once you answer one, you've, you, you just open up door for five more mm -hmm. um I, I i enjoy doing the training studies but i i also think it's really informative to and fascinating to look at the molecular stuff as well so i think i'd like to combine those um so that you really have a, a, a full picture the, the thing with the molecular work is that you you get information but then you're not really sure does this translate to application um and, and and or you see something acutely and again what does this mean for a six month time? whereas you look at the training studies and you see mu muscle growth or body comp or what strength whatever it is change but then you don't see the other side um 
and I, and, and like we were saying before, the, the differences between the way individuals respond. I want to know why. <laughs> um, and, and it's, and there's just so much that goes into that. It, it's so complicated, but I would, I would love to learn more about why there's this kind of differential response in, in, in muscle growth between people um, and what are the really significant factors, um, both molecularly and from a training programming perspective. That's interesting. I wonder if you could throw psych in there too and see like what their belief in the training program is, if that, you know, with your under, with your, uh, yeah, I mean, I background. think the, 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 there's psychological variables in fitness and nutrition that are so often overlooked and not only in terms of sustainability or adherence, but also just burnout. Mm. Um, you know, we talk about training seven days a week and, and that's not optimal physically, but what about psychologically too? You know, you get to a point where you hate exercise. <laughs> um, so, and the, and the same thing with kind of nutrition and eating behavior and food as a sort of social element. Uh, there's, yeah, the psychology stuff is for sure important. That's why we're in kinesiology. We got all of it, all the study of movement, right? From psychology all the way down to, we were down at the microscope this morning, your molecular level. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a big one when you, especially when you're talking about diets and stuff like that, is how you feel on it. Because if you feel restricted, you're going to go through that like deprivation, cravings, give in, guilty about the cravings, start the diet over again kind of thing. But if you don't feel restricted, I don't know, maybe you don't hit that circle. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just enjoy what you're doing, you know, like that. And that's all in your head. Well, you know, another thing that's interesting is perception of self and how that changes over time. So let's say you start lifting and you're 16 and you think the guy on the cover of Men's Health is the best, you know, most jacked um, example of fitness. And then you, you actually start to grow some muscle and on, then the guy on Men's Health doesn't look like muscular to you anymore. <laughs> and now you're looking at bodybuilders. And so it's, it's sort of like your perception of what is big or what is lean. Um, it, it changes as you change when yeah. you, uh, with, the, with the exercise. Makes sense. And, not, and knowing... Like, and it's hard because that in the, like that 16 year old, it's hard to tell that guy too. Like your body will never look like that guy's body because it's your body. Like if you yeah. had the same muscle and the same leanness, you guys would still look different because you're two different people. You know what I mean? Like your muscle insertion is different. Your height's different. Like you're, it's still going to look different in some like shape or form. Yeah, that's a hard truth we all have to face at some yeah. point in our journeys. <laughs> Dang it, never going to be that big guy. <laughs> I missed six foot by like yeah. an inch. <laughs> and I got these short lats I'll never get rid of. As jacked as I get, they'll just keep going wider. They're never going to go yeah. down. I want that big V, but it's just like... <laughs> my lat insertion point is like in my armpit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right that was uh, one thing I got dinged on for the um, on the last bodybuilding oh, show yeah. I did was... Uh, it wasn't lat development, but it, yeah, it was kind of like the proportion. It was like, we're gonna have to do some surgery, dude. We're gonna have to I'd, move those insertions down to your hips. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they only go so far. I don't know what you want me to do. Pretty soon. Know. It's just going to look goofy. Like I just have these giant <laughs> wings under my armpits. You have to add a, a small implant 
<laughs> underneath. There you go. That was one of the so, questions <laughs> on the, on the yeah, uh, no a, joke. I had to do a polygraph test for yeah, this for last bike. show. Like yeah, they were super strict on it. No joke. One of the questions it took me 15 minutes to get through because I kept laughing <laughs> and we kept having to go. Once you like laugh in a polygraph test, you, you now to need start. to start all uh, over and do the control questions. That's a good way to sneak through. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and that was one of the, have in the last seven years, have you, this in the last seven years, have you ever implanted, had an implant, been put under an implant to the best of your knowledge, like in your body to type the thing? the best of your knowledge. Yeah. I was like, what? Like, what? Did somebody drug me and put an implant in my like, calves? I woke up in Mexico and my calves were sore and they were huge like i couldn't it was so funny to me that that question but i guess i mean that question is there for a reason it's happened i've seen that pec implants is a thing for guys too right yeah that's interesting or the oils have you seen the oils in different countries now that's the crazy thing injecting yeah it's Uh, an oil and it just it's almost like this like big huge bolus of like just what happens to it it does it end up to just stays there Ew. Like this nasty, huge oil stays there. It's crazy. It can't looking. be good for performance either. It's not no, going to help you. No. <laughs> it's getting in the way of your real muscle. It's all straight and picks after it's pretty weird, gross right? and weird. I just yeah. have to imagine there's some disaster scenarios where it ends up somewhere you didn't want it. Yeah. yeah. You wake up and it's all in your places. <laughs> My feet are like hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> or even just, you know, like, it, you, it didn't all get inside muscle and yeah. now you have like this kind just of like traveling around <laughs> through your body gross <laughs> one day it's in your big finger and you're just like oh god <laughs> yeah it's interesting and then you get to different sports like i'm i'm guessing are the girls you're in it's like what what do they want like uh, they might be more strength-minded somebody might be more aesthetically minded like that's completely different too because sometimes if you're just let's say you're 100 strength minded, you're like i don't care what i look like that's gonna probably change like the dynamics of even the study or, you know, whatever you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were, we were talking earlier about how you can make kind of health sacrifices for performance. And I mean, one of those was a conversation of people who are a little bit too fat, um, maybe for their health, but that benefits their performance. And so it, you have to wonder what are the long-term effects of that? Yeah. And obviously the flip side, you know, people who are perhaps a little bit too lean, um, you know, and, and it's not easy for them to maintain. Yeah. Or they have an endurance sport where like, it doesn't matter how much they eat. They're just on a bike for hours a day or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you hear stories about prof- professional competitive cyclists not eating and doing all of that endurance work. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I think when you're doing endurance, the biggest thing for diet is just the calories in that you need. Almost at the point where, you know, when I was swimming and we were doing stuff, we're like, we were on the Michael Phelps diet, like 15 (laughs) pancakes with sugar, whatever you can get in, like we had to do it. And that's why when you stop swimming, throw on that 15 pounds immediately because you're just used to eating you know, whole pizza at one sitting. Lots of volume. It feels weird. It's, uh, you know, not wanting to wanting to be as light as possible mm-hmm. because it ben- it benefits your performance. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how, you're, I mean, obviously you need the energy to perform, but you don't want to be heavy because it's detrimental. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Cause like every ounce that you weigh yeah. is going to mess with your power ratio on that, on that bike. 
But think about all the glycogen that you need in your muscles is carrying water with it. That's why your whole body is not, you store, you store fat without any water, just yeah. fat cells, but you store carbs with water added. So, you know, if you're going to run a marathon, you got to have so much glycogen there, which is going to have so much water. But as you run, you're going to start losing that weight. You're automatic, you know, you're breathing it out, sweating it out. So yeah, it's crazy balance. Mm-hmm. It's like a jockey. They'll, they've been known to like not eat and go on crazy caloric restrictive diets and stuff like that and crazy um and you have to be strong to be a jockey yeah you're con- you're holding on to a thousand pound animal yeah. <laughs> yeah. and you weigh like a buck 20 yeah tops those are guys are like 117 it always puts their weight on there when you're betting yeah. on the horses yeah. that's an interesting sport and you got to think that being that deficient over a long long period of time I and mean, that could have some crazy health results in the long term yeah vitamins and minerals you're not getting maybe or even just like a caloric deficit over mm-hmm. that period of time. That's crazy. Yeah. Cool. All right. <laughs> cool. That was pretty fun. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> Talked about a lot. Yeah. yeah, I think we did. That was cool. Yeah, I don't know. I was going to go somewhere with that jockey thing. Where I could, oh, that was the quote. <laughs> Sorry. There was like a quote that went in and then I was like, who said that there, quote? Yeah, it was, if you want if you want to be healthy, don't compete. Do you remember who that, I can't remember who that was. I don't know, but we got to like, look oh, that up. Interesting. Like, cause you could, you know, mm-hmm. that could be a ton of different stuff. Cool. Yeah. Well, cool. What are you up to before, I guess we go on all the socials and on all that kind of stuff and what are you working on now and where can people find you and. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at laurencs1. And I'm out here for another couple days and then I'm heading back to Tampa. And we're hoping to start that study in the second week of September. And then I'm also applying to PhD programs in the fall. So I have some visits planned to schools. And we'll see where I end up. (laughs) That's awesome. Do you have top like a top three i am looking at mcmaster auburn and Rutgers, and i'll be going out to visit them um and again i'm looking for a a lab that sort of does a, a spectrum of work and my hope is to go into academia after that like Dr. Bagley. It's a good place to be. I get to hang out with you guys and podcast all day. You get those summers. Yeah. In San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco summer. Bring your jacket. <laughs> I'll, I'll be at the Cal State in Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can go inland to East Bay here. It's probably 90 degrees there. It's only about 15 miles away. <laughs> I'll never be that perfect 75 like in SoCal. I know. It's nice down there. It is. And, you know, Tampa... It's it's a little too hot, a little too humid. Yeah, that's the one thing that we don't have to mess around with out here, that humidity. It's a big deal. It is a huge deal. People were complaining yesterday that it was humid, and then I was like, you don't know humid. <laughs> like, it's all the way well, up in the teens. <laughs> well, it's humid here because it's foggy, but that's cold <laughs> humid. <laughs> the air is wet. <laughs> it's like 17% humidity. Yeah, we live in a cloud, today. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, cool. Thanks for awesome. coming na- coming up. Thank you for having me. Thanks for showing me around, yeah. hosting me. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, I'm excited to see the recent studies and kind of everything that is post that in the future. Happy to come back and chat again. 
All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for checking out the podcast. And thank you to the sponsors of the show, Primal Goods Company. Go to primalgoodsco.com, enter Life Ready at checkout for 10% off your order. Also, thank you to Life Ready Foods. Go to lifereadyfoods.com, check out our new Thrive Protein Powder. Uh, enter Life Ready at checkout and save yourself 10% off that order. So go to primal, primalgoodsco.com, lifereadyfoods.com, enter Life Ready at checkout. All right, folks, that's it for today. On the next podcast, we have Coach Rich Thurman. Uh, Rich is nearly 20 years of coaching, teaching, and personal training experience and has been one of the pioneers in steel mace education worldwide. He continues to develop programs, workshops, certifications surrounding that tool and its applications. Do not miss that one. That's it for today. Love you all. Bye.